Well, good morning. <clears throat> it is an exciting time to be a part of LifePoint. Amen. Um, so, uh, just uh, I told the first service as I was approaching to get my microphone for uh, the first sermon, uh, there was a new hard case sitting next to my microphone. It looked strangely like a small handgun case, like a hard case. Um, and so I have the privilege to talk about persecution this morning, but I didn't know if there was a new form of it that I was going to be surprised by by the tech team back there or not. Um, but nonetheless, uh, hopefully nothing like that will happen uh, this morning. Uh, but we are in a series called uh, um, Be God's People. Uh, looking at the Beatitudes uh, of Jesus. And basically what Jesus is doing is opening up uh, a larger section of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever uh, preached. And, uh, and that goes from Matthew chapter 5 verse, uh, through chapter 7. And this is kind of the introduction to that larger uh, sermon. And Jesus here is basically opening up to us the values of the kingdom and what it means to live as the blessed of God's kingdom, as God's people. And so the whole point of this series is simply for us to look at the fact that Jesus sets people free and transforms them to live in God's blessing by these kingdom values. And this morning, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. So let's go there together. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude um, kind of breaks the order of its preceding ones in a number of ways and makes it sort of unique. Uh, and the first one is, it is the first of the beatitudes to be repeated. So what this morning will serve to you as is actually an introduction to a two-part uh, um, sermon uh, on the, this particular beatitude. That Jesus actually introduces this and then repeats it again and expands it further to show how persecution works itself out in the life of the believer. But nonetheless, Jesus uh, is doing a number of things in just repeating these things. If anything is repeated, usually it's what? It's uncommon. It's something that's easy to be missed, and so they want to make sure that we don't miss it. So I was driving just earlier this week um, east on 76, like past Branson, Shell Knob area and all that, kind of out in no man's land in the wilderness areas. And uh, I kept coming upon these road signs that would... Uh, just show you, slow down, 40, there's a, take this one at 40 miles an hour because there's a sharp turn here or even like 25 miles an hour. And there were times where some of them were so sharp that there would be multiple warnings I would get. And at one point I came to one where there was two large signs on either side of the of the road, and basically they had built uh, these massive lumber signs just so you, to make sure you didn't miss the fact that there was this sharp turn, that if you weren't paying attention to it on your way, uh, you would run off. And so Jesus, in many ways, is using this repetition and this kind of break in his order of the Beatitudes to show us something that if we're not careful, we'll miss, that he's repeating it to us so that we might be sure we don't miss this one. Secondly, also what is unique about this particular beatitude is it sort of serves as a somewhat of a disclaimer of sorts 
for all of the rest of them. Not only is it something that's easy to be missed, but it can often be something that we don't quite relate to blessedness in the kingdom if we're not careful at first glance. Most of us don't read those kind of terms of usage, that disclaimers, you know, when those things pop up and it's like, do you agree to our terms of use? And then you scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And finally, you just don't even read it and you just click. You know you do it, right? That's what Facebook's getting in trouble with, right? Um, But I digress there. But you just kind of click, I accept. You don't really read that unless that's your thing. But this disclaimer of sorts Jesus gives us we would do well to fully consider because it's actually in counting the cost that Jesus calls us to enter into his kingdom that there are realities to which we often miss and persecution is among them so what is a disclaimer it's a statement that explains the scope of what can and cannot be claimed or expected Uh, And it usually involves a situation that has some level of uncertainty or risk. And this is what Jesus is basically doing in this beatitude. And yet, he's not doing this for his own protection, uh, you know, by disclosing these things. We're not at legal risk or any of those kind of things. But really just as a reminder for us who enter into the kingdom, into the blessedness uh, of these values, that, that this is not outside of these things. And so the beatitude... Jesus' disclaimer is this, simply that those who would follow him in these kingdom values are to be reminded that we should not think of Christian blessedness as an absence of difficulty or resistance. As a matter of fact, the values that we find to be at the core of what it means to be in the kingdom are inherent about them. There are points of conflict They're inherently points of conflict. And so to walk in the blessedness of God as the people of God is to thus welcome active resistance. But the blessing of kingdom life isn't just found despite these these resistances, as if they are just kind of a, a consequence to overlook, but they are actually within them that we find blessedness, that the resistances themselves are actually a state of blessedness. And that's what I want us to to look upon this morning, that to be those of the kingdom is to be those that are persecuted. And so the main point of this sermon this morning that I want to aim towards, as I believe the the scriptures are, are pointing us in this direction as well, that Jesus is pointing us to this main objective, and that is that that we would understand that the blessed of the kingdom have their allegiance to righteousness confirmed by persecution. That the blessed of the kingdom have their allegiance to righteousness actually confirmed by persecution. The biblical word for persecution uh, simply is to be persecuted, someone who is to be subject to systematic harassment, attack, or hostile pursuit. That's what the word means, to run down, to pursue after, to run after, to chase, okay? So the persecuted are rejected, they're reviled, they're slandered. Those who are attacking will seek to drive out or expel those who they they disagree with. And so what we have here between these values of the kingdom and the values of the world 
is a clash between two irreconcilable value systems. We've seen this, right, already. The natural inclinations of us, these values of the kingdom, they're, they're natural, they're opposed to our natural man. They're not our natural default that Jesus often has called us to in each of these beatitudes. And so what we have then is that persecution is then a token of genuineness and actually a uh, certificate of sorts of Christian authenticity. You see, suffering is actually a badge of true discipleship. And so the word persecute, again, means to pursue, to chase from place to place, to systematically oppress and harass And the root word actually can be used in a legal term to mean to prosecute in order to bring an action against a man in a legal sense, to bind. And so what we have is an active pursuit of something in order to undo it, usurp it, and destroy it. And although we might not find in our current Christian context the sort of persecution that we've seen historically and globally, there are nonetheless resistances that are inherent in walking with Jesus. And this morning, I hope to even bring your attention to some of the more subtle areas of resistance that we should expect and be responsive to in our life. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, verse 34. This is the reality of every follower of Jesus. I send you... As prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of you, they will flog and persecute from town to town. That persecution is the reality for all Christ followers. And so I want to give you, by way of an introduction, like this sermon in many ways is an introduction to this beatitude of being persecuted. I want to give you three realities of the persecuted. Three realities of the persecuting. The first one is this, that persecution should be expected in a world that is resistant to righteousness. That persecution should actually be expected in a world that is resistant to righteousness. When, uh, if we would take some time and just kind of zoom in on this phrase Jesus uses here. What we find is that the preposition for the sake of modifies those that are persecuted as a marker or a causation of their persecution. So what that basically means is that it is with the implication and purpose of righteousness that they are persecuted for. It is for the sake of, on account of, and because of righteousness that they are persecuted Righteousness is the noun. It is the center of the beatitude. It's the object of this phrase Jesus is using. And it's the root of the identity of the one who's being persecuted. And therefore, it is the cause of their persecution. So what does that mean for us? That means that Christian It is your very nature as a believer that is the cause of much offense and resistance. That to be a follower of Jesus is to be the the causation of all resistance and persecution. 
And so righteousness being at the core of those, it means that we are seeking to do what is right out of being in a right relationship to God. And it is that very thing that defines the Christian life as the root of it being coming from Christ. But it is that very seeking after righteousness that is the cause of our persecution. So what does that mean for us? It means we need not make ourselves more offensive, for we are by nature naturally offensive as Christians. We don't need any help there, okay? Those that would seek righteousness and the values of the kingdom are actually naturally offensive to the natural world in its broken state and natural man. And so um, just by way of illustration... One of our, uh, our student team just got back from a mission trip to Indianapolis where we were serving some impact partners. And one of our adult leaders who had partaken in our training and were, was leading a portion of that trip, uh, she basically, we had been talking about attentiveness to God and what that looks like and his nearness in our life. And that's the very thing that we hold out uh, in mission and evangelism, and that's all that we're called to do. But there are times like, what do you do? How, how are you attentive when, to God even when it's hard? And what she did was she asked the room of our team that was about 28 at that time, what, uh, how many of those in the room had had a more difficult week leading up to mission trip in the days or the week prior than normal, you know, just kind of like stuff hitting the fan at an unusual rate, right? Like where conflict or tension or maybe resistance seemed to come at a greater volume, and nearly the entire room raised their hand. That that week and the days leading up to these things, there was a an higher than average level of resistance that came. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is trying to draw our attention to, that when we seek after righteousness, there will be resistance. So expect it and respond to it. So here's what this means for us. We should not be surprised at natural opposition that comes within ourselves. Like we've said, the, the Beatitudes themselves, they, they cut because they show us Areas that are not natural to us, but are values that come from the kingdom life and Jesus' work in us. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's a natural opposition within ourselves. We shouldn't be surprised when there's a natural opposition in parenting our children. We shouldn't be surprised if there's a natural opposition to the ordering and priority of our lives. When we try to do that, when our, even in our scheduling, we shouldn't be surprised when there's natural opposition by what is celebrated and valued by the masses around us. We should, however, be suspicious when there is no resistance. This is what Jesus is trying to call us to. Listen to what the apostles um, Paul, Peter, and John tell us in their epistles. The, the first, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this. This is the Apostle Paul. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. And then the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 11, Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Again, we hear the echoing of the apostles of this disclaimer of Jesus. Don't be surprised by these things. Be aware of these things. Expect these things. Because God's word, like God's righteousness, is a light that pierces darkness and an edge that cuts deeply, even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, righteousness rightly lived out and proclaimed by the people of God confronts and illuminates the true nature of our deepest need. That in our very living in righteousness and pursuing righteousness and proclaiming righteousness, we are illuminating and confronting exposing even the deepest needs of human nature. Our nature is not just in need of a light tune-up. It is in need of an overhaul completely. We need the righteousness of another. And therefore, there's exposure to things. And so this leads then to the second reality of persecution, that it is this, it's the result of exposed unrighteousness. Persecution comes because there's an exposure of a reality of the state of righteousness, a state of unrighteousness. And so we see this by uh, the Apostle Paul who in Ephesians chapter 5 talks about what it means to walk in love. And we've talked a great deal um, this season of the life of our church that we are loved and what that means to be loved But just by the very nature of walking as the children of light and and walking in this love, there's a natural exposure that happens that Paul's getting at. And so Paul talks about walking in love being this and walking as children of light by not partaking in unrighteousness and by walking according to what is good and right and pleasing to the Lord. And in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says this. He says, not only don't take any part in unfruitful works of unrighteousness, but yet even expose them, that by living as children of light, you naturally will expose unfruitful works of unrighteousness. So friends, walking in love and righteousness actually exposes unrighteousness. And so here he connects persecution with the offense of the cross. You see, there's only persecution when there is an offense. There is no, where there is no offense, there is no cross. And so the cross is offensive. I'll give you three reasons. The cross is offensive first because it undermines the rule of self in our lives. The old self of sin and unrighteousness is put to death in the cross. Secondly, it is a banner of the kingdom. It declares that there is a chief authority and ruling king, and it is not us. We are not masters of our own domain. And then thirdly, it is offensive 
because it is light breaking forth into the kingdom of darkness. The cross is offensive. And what is offensive brings opposition. And so as an antonym by illustration to this beatitude, one modern pastor and theologian has illustrated by, helpfully, I think, by giving the antonym of every uh, beatitude, and he calls these the unbeatitudes. And so basically for us to see what is celebrated naturally in the world versus what Jesus is saying should be the values of the kingdom, he says that the the antonym of the beatitude, the unbeatitude, would be this. Congratulations to the popular, for the world lies at their feet. You see, but to seek righteousness is actually to seek what is unpopular and even offensive. To be salt and light, to treasure righteousness... As the following section Jesus will walk into from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 shows us that that is disrupting. There's a disruptive nature to a life of righteousness. And so Jesus' light cannot be hidden even if you were to attempt to hide it. And salt affects all that is within its touch. So make no mistake, Christian, The most controversial thing in the world is our most treasured thing, and that is the redeeming love of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? It means we cannot have a privatized faith. If we walk as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the merciful as those who would seek to be peacemakers, it is not a guarantee that we will be received or even accepted in this world by these values. It is more of a guarantee that you will encounter opposition and resistance to these very things. The gospel of life is not one that is popular or palpable, at least at first, even in our lives, but it is a message of life and the answer to the deepest yearnings to those who would hear and receive it. And so, one example of of this reality actually coming to bear, someone naturally opposed to the cross that upon receiving it was overwhelmed by it. When studying this verb persecuted, or persecutor in the New Testament, what we see is it's used often more than any other in conjunction with one person in the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. He was a well-known persecutor of the church before he encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus. And here's what we learn of the persecution of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 22, uh, we see in verse 7, when Jesus comes to him, he says, Why are you persecuting me? So we see even in the onset, the the persecution coming against the followers of Jesus are first and foremost persecutions that are aimed at Jesus. Resistances that come our way are ultimately resistances to Jesus. In verse 8 then, he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And then in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, Paul, giving his own testimony, says... I was a zealous persecutor of the church. He's like, I'm, I did it 
with intensity even. And then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he goes on to again give his testimony. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So even in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul, we learn that ultimately, as a persecutor, the very thing he tried to destroy The very thing he resisted and was opposed to is the very thing that overwhelmed his life. And it confronted and destroyed his own false self being Saul and gave him a true self in Paul. So even our natural resistances to the gospel, once we are exposed and then receive the love of God, we find that the thing we naturally are opposed to actually winds up overwhelming our lives. And so will every source of persecution, whether in this life or in the judgment to come, all that might seek to destroy and resist will ultimately be overwhelmed by this good news. So that leads me lastly to the third reality of persecution, and it is this, that persecution has a way of working out integrity in the lives of the blessed. Persecution actually has a way of working out integrity in our lives as we follow Jesus in the kingdom of righteousness. And so when we look at uh, this biblical idea of integrity, what we find is it speaks to completeness and wholeness. And in in Ephesians chapter 6, specifically alluding to the armor of God, what we find is that to have integrity is to have a fullness of, of armor, to take upon the whole, the whole bit of it, okay? Not to have any compromise. You don't want to go into battle with any compromises in your armor. But persecution and resistance actually has a way of exposing the gaps and compromises even within our Christian character and a way of working out the fullness that righteousness brings in our lives. You see, resistance, whatever it might look like, actually offers us just another everyday chance to surrender to Jesus and his righteousness. In the face of resistance, will we surrender again to Jesus? For this is where our blessedness and our strength lies. It causes us then to take up the whole armor of God and live with a renewed, utter loyalty with no compromises. Because again, as Ray Ortland, uh, that same modern pastor, theologian I mentioned earlier, says helpfully here, no shortcuts or halfway Christianity will stand. In our age of ironic, the ironic inversion of our true grandeur, I must not accept the mocking erosion of who I am in service of the king. Resistance has a way of exposing, even in our own lives, that we might have greater integrity. And so, as 2 Corinthians 4 9 shows us, the gospel faith isn't just drought tolerant, it is actually something that flourishes in times of drought. That the very good news of Christianity, the gospel, grew stronger the more harshly it was opposed by the kingdoms like Rome. And eventually it overtook it, even. 
It might be cast down like the Savior at its center, but it rises indestructible. So friends, what does this mean for us? It means that resistances rightly received actually have a way of strengthening the purest forms of our allegiance. Because as 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us, affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. These resistances have a way of strengthening our allegiances in a greater form. And so as the reformer Martin Luther once proclaimed, the better a Christian man is, the more he will experience the heat of the conflict. But it is where the battle rages that the loyalty of the soldier is proven. This is what Jesus is calling us to, to expect these things and see these things as the means to greater yieldedness to Jesus where our strength and blessedness lies. You see, persecution and affliction will lead us to either cast off our allegiances to Christ and his righteousness or to cast off all that hinders us from full allegiance to it. And this is the blessing of persecution. Within it, we have that it unites us more fully in our allegiance to our Savior. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13-14 through 14 tell us this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so the blessed of the kingdom then have their allegiance to righteousness confirmed by, right, by persecution. Let us not miss this. Let us not forget to count this as a part of the reality of the Christian life that we might yield to Jesus. So as the worship team returns, I invite us to consider that this disclaimer that has called us to count the cost now calls us to respond in complete loyalty because the disclaimer ends in a promise, an assured hope that the kingdom is ours. That again, the very thing the persecuted are persecuted for becomes theirs to the fullest You are of the kingdom, you see, when your loyalties go beyond the life you now live. And as Jesus gives us the promise of this hope in Matthew 25, 34, the blessed of the kingdom who endures will inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of this world. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the promise of this kingdom that endures all opposition to it. Thank you that you assure us that you've overcome the world, that even in our oppositions, we find moment by moment, everyday opportunities to surrender deeply to you. So might we see these things not as surprises along the Christian journey, but things to be expected, perhaps even, that our blessedness might work itself out more fully in our lives. 
So I pray this morning, if there is someone in this room within the sound of my voice who has not yet come themselves to a place, surrendering to saying yes to you, giving their life to this King that has walked in resistance even, yes, to the, in their own life to you, that they would say yes and believe upon you. Lord, for the rest of us, for the Christians in this room, might we see these everyday resistances in our lives as invitations to yield more to the strength of our blessedness in our Savior. Thank you for the hope of your grace that endures beyond all that might come against it. Might we abide in these things in Jesus' name.